0: Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. You can open your Bibles, please, to the book of Psalms. We're going to be looking at the 139th Psalm today, briefly, verses 1 through 16. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. We've got paperback Bibles in front of you, underneath one of the nearby chairs, You'll find this passage on page 300. <clears throat> I want to let you know about um, next weekend. We have a, a bit of a special event going on. That is, we've got some of our missionaries coming to visit us, Phil and Barb DeHart. Um, you've heard us uh, pray for them many times. They have visited us several times. They are in the Asian Crescent. We have sent two groups uh, on to the other side of the world to, to visit with De, the DeHarts, and Mary and I are part of one of those groups, and um, looking forward to the opportunity to to hear from them. That's next weekend. So the DeHarts will be here. In July, we don't have discipleship hour classes, um, but we will make an exception next Sunday. We are going to turn over the 9 a.m. hour to the DeHarts. So, if you want to hear in more detail about what's going on in their ministry, 9 a.m. tomorrow, uh, excuse me, next Sunday, we'll be in the fellowship hall. And um, they'll speak during the service. And then Sunday evening, we'll have them here particularly to visit with the youth. So I know the youth group is also not meeting through July, but uh, there will be an exception uh, next Sunday. We'll send you more details about that. But um, next Sunday, the DeHarts are here. It would be great if we could come out and encourage them. So looking at Psalm 139 uh, this morning. Uh, as uh, probably all of you know, something quite extraordinary happened about 10 days ago. A week ago, Friday, our Supreme Court ruled by um, a 5 to 4, or 6 to 3 ruling, depending on how you look at it, a 5 to 4 ruling technically, uh, that there is no constitutional right to an abortion in this country. So the court effectively overturned this case called Roe v. Wade, which had stood since 1973. So for almost 50 years, this particular court ruling has stood. The Supreme Court today um, overruled that landmark case since 1973, since Roe v. Wade um, was put into effect there have been something like close to 64 million children killed in this country. And so today, since this event two Fridays ago, um, there is reason for those of us who have a passion for the sanctity of life to rejoice. Uh, This is a time of celebration. Uh, This is without question the greatest pro-life victory since Roe versus Wade. This is something that many people thought were impossible, particularly those who have been working for this cause over the course of the last 50 years. People have been praying persistently about this, and we see this as a dramatic answer to the prayers of God's people. Uh, It is a time of celebration for us, and yet we should make some clarifications here before we go further. Uh, one thing that needs to be understood is that the ruling two Fridays ago does not actually ban abortions in this country. It doesn't make abortion illegal in this country. That's the way some people are presenting it. That is not what happened. What the court decided is that the decision would be returned to the individual states in our union to make their own decision on that. That's what happened. This was a, a legal decision. It wasn't really a decision about the morality or immorality of abortion. It was a legal decision, returning this to the states. In our state, Indiana, um, abortion is not currently illegal. It's legal. And in fact, people have been coming into our state, I understand, for abortions since Roe was overturned. But our General Assembly is going to be meeting uh, this week. And so many are expecting that when our General Assembly meets that a ban on abortion uh, will be put in place in our state. But expectations are that our nation will be pretty much divided right down the middle. Expectations are that abortion will be illegal in about 26 states and legal in about 24 states. So pretty close to 50-50. So, even though we are um, rejoicing today um, as Christians, um, we are also aware that there are many people who are very shocked and angered and afraid and upset by this ruling, and that uh, some perhaps don't even know what to think about it, and so what I want to declare today is that uh, this is not the end of this battle, for lack of a better term, this is just the beginning Uh, There there is no time more important for us as believers to be clear on where we stand on this issue. And so that's why uh, the elders have agreed, along with me, that it is appropriate that we take a Sunday and think about this issue, um, abortion. So we're parting here just today from our series on the book of Mark. We will return, God willing, next Sunday to our study of the book of Mark. But today, um, we're going to look at the Scriptures and see what the Scripture says about this issue. Our opinions, our position, our conviction on this issue should not depend on what political party you belong to. It shouldn't depend on what most Americans think, whatever the media might tell you, nor should it depend on any personal experience, positive or negative, that you've had. This position should be solved and decided based on the teaching of Scripture. Scripture. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at this Psalm 139 and see what it says to us. This is a psalm written by David, and um, it's a psalm about the attributes of God. Uh, It talks about God's omniscience. It talks about God's omnipresence. And then in verses 13 to 16, which is where we're going to spend our time this morning, there's some very instructive things said here about the life of the unborn. So if you're able to stand, please do that, and I'm going to read just the first 16 verses of Psalm 139. Psalm 139, 1 through 16. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. when as yet there were none of them. Holy Spirit, would you please open our eyes, soften our hearts to behold wonderful things in the truth of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So, let's see what uh, our Lord has to say to us through this Spirit-inspired Portion of the scriptures. First thing that um, I want us to consider today is uh, just simply how to make the pro life argument. Making the pro life argument, which uh, comes to us pretty clearly from this passage. Now, some people will say that we really shouldn't be too dogmatic uh, about this issue as Christians because, after all, the Bible is silent on this issue. That's what they'll say. The Bible is silent, the Bible does not mention abortion. And in fact, the word abortion is not even used in the Scriptures. And in fact, that is true. But when it comes to basic interpretation of the Scriptures, we don't have to have an explicit mention of something in order for us to have a position on it. Um, So, for instance, if somebody says, don't take your uncle's television, Uh, Nobody can say to that, hey, how do we know if that's right or wrong? The Bible never says it. Uh, We, however, look to the Scriptures and see that the Bible does say, do not steal, and there's a principle there in do not steal that when applied correctly would apply to the taking of your uncle's TV. We can be very confident you shouldn't take your uncle's TV. It's called stealing. So similarly, on the issue of abortion, we have passages in the Scripture that say things pretty clearly like, you shall not murder. That's the principle stated negatively, stated more positively from Deuteronomy 30, I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life, that you and your… how interesting that, the, that Moses says, you and your offspring, your descendants, your children, that you and your offspring may live. Abortion is the taking of a human life. And so although the Bible does not say abortion, it does say do not murder, it does say choose life, from that we conclude that abortion is immoral. Now, there is an assumption that I'm making when I say that, and the assumption is that the unborn is a human person. The unborn is a human being, a living human being. This is where this debate is won or lost. This is the central point that we need to grapple with. Is abortion really nothing more than just pulling a tooth, just removing a part of the woman's body, like an organ or an appendage of some sort? Or is abortion actually the taking of human life? This is where the debate centers. We can't get away from this. This is the fundamental point we need to approach. And I think Psalm 139 answers this question for us. So let's take a look at this. Again, this is written by King David. And in verses 1 through 6, David speaks to us about God's omniscience. Um, God is the one who has known me, verse 1. God is the one who knows when he sits down and when he rises up. He sits down on his throne. God knows it. He gets up from his throne to go across the room. God knows it. God knows everything. <clears throat> That's what we mean when we say he's omniscient. Even verse 4 says, before a word is on my tongue, God knows what you and I are going to say before we know what we're going to say. God knows all things. That's verses 1 through 6. But then he goes on, verses 7 through 12, and says that God is omnipresent. That is, He is present in all places. Verse 8, if I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Um, <clears throat> if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, out in a place where um, we would think... Uh, of a place being rather uninhabited by any living thing? Well, even there, verse 10, your hand shall lead me. God is present in all places. And so in verses 11 and 12, then David begins to kind of introduce this idea of a, of a place of darkness. And um, he says, surely darkness shall cover me. Like, certainly there's at least one place where I can go where maybe the Lord wouldn't know or where the Lord isn't present, and that would be like a place of darkness. Now, when he says darkness here, he's not using this as a metaphor for evil. He's talking about literal darkness here, a place absent of light. And as he thinks about this concept of darkness, he thinks about what would be the darkest place imaginable, and that leads him to think of the womb of his mother. What could be a darker place? Not an evil place, <laughs> a darker place, a place absent of light. He thinks of his mother's womb, and then that leads us to verses 13 through 16, where he begins to unpack some of the implications of this. So we see just you know, three things here, three factors, three kind of um, angles that we can look at as we think about this question of whether the unborn is a human person based on what David says here. So, first of all, we see something about the value of the unborn. Look what he says. Verse 14, I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. There is something awesome going on as God forms A human being. Verse 15. I was intricately woven together. That there's a a unique, divine, creative work going on when an embryo or a fetus is being formed in the womb. There's this kind of remarkable uh, insight here that God is actually caring for the fetus even before the mother is able to care for her own fetus. God is extending His care into the womb because of His care for that child because he places such a high value on unborn life. Wonderfully made, intricately woven, there is exceeding value placed on the human being in the womb here that uh, transcends and exceeds the value that we might give to other living creatures like animals. We set human beings apart, made in the image of God, wonderfully and fearfully May, Great value God is placing on the unborn. But we see something also when we think of the timing, like when is all of this happening? And notice how David describes this. He doesn't, when he thinks of his past, <clears throat> he doesn't trace his history back to the moment of his birth, does he? Verse 13, "'For you formed me in my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb.'" When I was a fetus, when I was an embryo, this is when David is affirming that his life began. He goes on to talk about, in verse 15, being intricately woven in the depths of the earth. The depths of the earth, that's just a a kind of a poetic way to describe this, this place of secrecy. It's referring to the womb of his mother. So the timing is not going back to the point that David entered the earth by being born, but the time that David was being formed in his mother's womb. And then we see a third thing here, and that is the nature of the unborn, the, the kind of thing this is. What, what is the unborn? How do we describe its nature? And notice the personal pronouns that David is using throughout these verses, 13 through 16. You formed, verse 13, David speaking to God, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Verse 14, I am the one who is fearfully and wonderfully made. Verse 14, my frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. You get the point here? He's affirming that. The fetus in the womb of his mother is not some kind of separate creature or thing from him. What David says is, that was me. He doesn't see his unborn, pre-born, embryonic state as anything different than himself. This is just simply the beginning of his development as a personal, unique individual. Creatures don't become different things in the process of their development. That's the mistake a lot of people make when they think of this issue as if um, the fetus can't do this, can't do that. That somehow makes him or her less human. No, there are lots of development that takes place in our lives even after we're born. Infants can't walk, that doesn't make them not human, they develop. In fact, the human brain is known not to be fully developed until we get into our 20s. So human development takes place over a large portion of time, and it starts not at the point of birth, but even in the womb. think what we're seeing here from Psalm 139, given the value that God is placing on the fetus, giving the timing, extending back to the womb, giving the nature... David seeing himself as being present in the womb, we have to conclude uh, nothing other than the fact that the unborn is a human person, a human being. Now, people make a distinction between human and person. We're not going to get into that today. That's kind of the latest attack on the pro-life argument. We can talk about that if you want, but the Scriptures are teaching us the unborn is a human person. And we look throughout the rest of Scripture, and we can see this affirmed in other places. It's not like I'm just pulling out some obscure passage in the depths of Scripture that nobody knows about. No, Job says this. Job is thinking about himself in comparison to his servants, his maidservant and manservant. And he said, did not God who made me in the womb make him and did not one fashion us in the womb? We're both made in the womb. Job says, continuing, The same idea. This is David again in Psalm 22, but he says, You, God, are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at your mother's breast. And as we look to Luke chapter 1 in the New Testament, uh, here's the angel speaking to Mary, announcing that Mary is going to give birth to the Christ child. The angel answers Mary, and says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, Mary, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. This is before Jesus was born, and yet the angel tells Mary that it is a child who is going to be born. Isn't it interesting to consider that our Lord Jesus Christ was once an embryo? was once a fetus, a human life in the womb of his mother. Isn't it interesting also that many people would look at Mary's situation and say, here we have a young girl, probably 16 or 17. Here we have someone living in poverty. Here we have somebody who is unwed. What a perfect candidate for abortion. And aren't we glad that that's not the route that Mary chose? Friends, I think this is something that we just all know by instinct, right? Because of the arguments floating about in our culture, we have to resort sometimes to subtle nuanced arguments to try to make the point, but the fact is we just, we just know it. The fetus is a person. The fetus is human. It's a living life. When you see a pregnant woman, you don't go to her and say, hey, how's your fetus doing? We say, how's your baby doing? If a pregnant woman dies, we mourn the loss of her life and we mourn the loss of the baby, too. We mourn the loss of both of them because we know they're both human lives. In fact, there was a study done in 2019 by the University of Chicago surveying 5,300 biologists in the United States. 96% of them said human life begins at fertilization. 96%. Of the leading biologists, those that we would expect to have the final word on this issue, 96% said life begins at conception, and a very high majority of them were liberal and pro-choice. yet they still acknowledged what is common sense to many of us, but what the Scriptures affirm as well. Even our president a little while ago was talking about abortion and a, a right of a woman to abort the child, he said. I mean, he's called the fetus, the embryo, a a child. I don't know if he intended to do that, but he's just speaking what we all know by instinct and what the Scriptures tell us. Friends, we have to conclude. Abortion is a grave moral evil. It is an act of violence against the defenseless. That's the position of the Scriptures we have to maintain that. Anthony Levitino, former abortion doctor, performed many abortions in his life, and then his five-year-old daughter got hit by a car and killed. And when he returned to his practice as an abortionist, he said, you know what, I just, I can't do this anymore. And the reason, he said, was because when he was getting ready to do an abortion, he says, I just I can't see here a right to choose what I see as somebody's son or daughter. And he concluded by saying this, once you finally realize that killing a baby at 20 weeks is wrong, then it doesn't take too long to figure out that killing a baby at any size is wrong. So this is <clears throat> a very brief presentation of the pro-life argument, of course, meant much more to say. Let's leave it at that. Go on to the second thing, which is responding to pro-choice objections. Uh, Of course, there are many who would disagree with the case I'm laying out, and maybe some of you are in that category. I don't know. But um, obviously, this is a a highly charged topic. Um, Nonetheless, it is not one that should be avoided when the time is right to speak into it, but we should not ignore the fact that um, this is something people feel extremely strongly about. Uh, this is something that gets people very angry and upset, and so we have to be careful how we deal with this. The scriptures command us always to talk about this with gentleness and respect, and the Proverbs would tell us also. Uh, These things, as we think about responding to to pro-choice arguments and engaging in a discussion on this issue, remember that a soft answer turns away wrath and a harsh word stirs up anger. Remember that. Soft answers. Soft. Remember, the wise of heart is called discerning and sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. Not yelling. Not typing in all caps. (laughs) not calling people names, not resorting to personal attacks, sweetness of speech. So in any discussion we get into on this issue, we should remember these things. But here's some common objections to the pro-life argument or responding to pro-choice objections. So I've got four quick ones here we'll look at. One is maybe the one you hear the most often, a woman has a right to her body and nobody should tell her what to do with her own body. Now, of course, essentially this is true. We all have a, a right to our own bodies in the sense we're, we're free to, um, <clears throat> to, to use our bodies as we wish. In most cases, the thing is, is that it's, it's not an absolute statement. We can't say this absolutely. There are certain exceptions that apply in a lot of different ways, actually, but particularly with regard to pregnancy There is something very different here about the woman's body. The the unborn in the life of a mother is not like an an appendix or an organ inside the mother's body. The unborn instead is a unique individual distinct from the mother's body. The unborn is inside the mother's body, yes, but the unborn is still distinct from the mother's body. The, the, The mother has her own... Um, biological makeup. She has a heart, she has lungs, she has stomach, she has various organs in her body which are serving her as an individual, her health. But the unborn also has his or her own heart, lungs, stomach, organs that are forming in order not to serve the mother, but to serve the life of the child. The unborn is growing independence on the mother to some degree, but nonetheless distinct from the mother as a separate individual. I think we can see this in a, in a clear and basic way when we think about the fact that there are some medications that a mother could take that would benefit her but would harm her child. And what do we say to the pregnant mother? You shouldn't take that medication. When you look at a medication bottle, you'll see the warnings against how this might harm the fetus. It might not do anything to the mother, but it harms the fetus. And so the mother's not going to say, I have a right to my own body. I'm going to take whatever medication I want. A good mother's not going to do that. A good mother's going to be concerned. I don't want to take something that's going to harm the living thing inside me, even if it doesn't harm me at all. What a strange world we live in when we're warned against medications that might harm the fetus, and yet at the same time laws are passed that says a woman can kill her fetus, it seems like a contradiction. Our laws are confused on this issue. A woman has a right to her body. In most cases, yes, but not always. Second thing, don't force your views on me. Don't tell me your moral view. Don't shove down my throat your Christian convictions. This is a, a view based in an assumption of tolerance or, or relativism, this idea that, that morality is uh, based on personal preference and not something that is objective or transcendent or existing outside of us. Uh, Many, many people think this way, and that's what's at the root of this objection. Don't force your views on me. You have your way of looking at it. I have my way of looking at it. Let's just leave it at that. And so sometimes people will say, don't like an abortion, don't have one, as if that just kind of ends the debate. But friends, that's really a lot like saying, don't like slavery, don't have one. Don't have a slave if you don't like slavery. What's the problem with that? What's the problem with that idea? The problem is we all know that slavery is wrong. We all know that slavery is not dependent upon personal preference. We all know that the state, that the laws of any just society should protect people from being enslaved and should protect the unborn from being killed in the womb. I mean, sadly, it is true that there used to be laws in our country that did not protect people of certain races or certain skin color. Sadly, today, there are laws that do not protect people of a certain size or level of development. It's actually very similar. Our laws should protect those who are marginalized and disenfranchised in our society. So there is a transcendent moral standard to which we're all accountable, and this does not resort to personal preference. So we would excuse that objection as well. The third objection that we'll consider today is this idea that abortion is basic health care. This was uh, on the Indianapolis Star website all this past week. There was a, a picture that said exactly this, abortion is basic health care. So I guess we all know where the Indianapolis Star is coming from on this issue. Abortion is basic health care. Now, of course, uh, there are isolated cases when this is true. There are occasions when a mother's life would be threatened um, by the carrying of her child to full term. There are exceptions, and we can think about those depending on the circumstances but in most cases, this is just not true. Abortion is not basic health care, and in fact, we can look to an organization like the Guttmacher Institute. This is an organization that supports a woman's right to choose. It's a very pro-choice organization, and yet the information that they present is actually very objective, and a lot of what they present serves the cause of the pro-life movement, actually, and One thing they found when asking a question among women as to why they have abortions, the reasons most frequently cited were that having a child would interfere with a woman's education, work, or ability to care for dependents, almost three-quarters, that she could not afford a baby right now, that she did not want to be a single mother, was having relationship problems. That's mostly why abortions occur. Not not healthcare reasons. Don't want to deny that healthcare sometimes plays into it, but the great majority of time that that is not the issue. In fact, abortion is not basic health care, it's the exact opposite of it, isn't it? It's not providing care to the unborn, it's inflicting harm on the unborn. We have to reject this argument as well. The last thing we'll consider today <clears throat> is this argument that to be pro life, to be properly pro life, we should be pro life from womb to tomb, they sometimes say. And the idea here, and this often comes from those in the church, actually, we hear this a lot among people who are otherwise pro life, and what they'll say is if you're going to be truly and fully committed to the pro life cause, you should be committed womb to tomb. That is, you should be committed to Um, the quality of life of a person throughout that person's life, not just when the person is in the womb, but after the person is born and all the way until the person dies. And so we should be concerned about making sure that people have proper health care and a proper level of education and a certain income level and housing opportunities and you're not really pro-life unless you're committed to all of those things. So don't be talking so much about the life in the womb because it's all empty if you're not committed to all these other things. That's kind of how the argument goes. Of course, we're not going to deny that we should be concerned about income level education and caring for people as best we can. But the pro-life position is not guaranteeing anybody any level of quality of life. That, that's not the purpose. Of our position. We're fighting for the opportunity for life. We're saying a person should have a right to live, not guaranteeing that that person's going to have any level of income or education opportunity. We don't know what's going to happen. But certainly we do not want to conclude that a person shouldn't live because that person might have a hard life. Living next door to Mary and me is a, a family who have. Multiple foster kids. What is it? Three or four? Four? Four foster kids um, next door to us, and we just hear them laughing and yelling. They yell a lot. <laughs> they yell. They, there's a trampoline out there, and they jump up and down on that trampoline all day long. And their heads come up over the fence, and they say, "Hi, Bob. Hi, Mary." They greet us almost every day. they got a pool out there. Their parents are foster parents. Parents are like Mary's in my age. They're, they're They're in their 50s. Caring for these kids. Isn't it appalling to think that those little lives might have been ended because somebody was afraid they would wind up in foster care one day? I'd love to go to people in foster care, some kids, and say let me ask you a question. Are you, are you glad you're alive or do you wish you were dead? I mean, how many kids would reply with the latter? This womb-to-tomb argument, it's a distraction. It's a distraction from the main thing that I'm trying to impress upon you today, which is that the unborn, whether they wind up in foster care or not, is a living human being. And so Scott Klusendorf says it like this, stay focused on the one question that really matters. What is the unborn? Until that question is answered, everything else is a distraction. (laughs) It's not that everything else isn't worth talking about, but it's a distraction from the main issue that the unborn is a living human being. So one last thing we want to consider this morning, how do we live, how do we go forward now in a post-Roe culture? We need to be prepared. As I said earlier, battle's not over. Battle's just starting. Uh, We will have, uh, I think, new opportunities to address this issue in the coming weeks, months, and years. I want to recommend a couple books to you um, that I highly recommend to you, Scott Klusendorf, A Case for Life. Um, I don't know, that's 10 years or so old, but but still very relevant, very important book, very well written, very thoughtful Um, the one on the right tearing us apart ryan anderson alexander de sanctus just came out this past week actually uh, i'm reading through this not all the way through it but it, it's 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 excellent um, it, it just lays out the case so well I mean, if i could just require you to read one of these books i would do it <laughs> maybe i should talk to the session about that but mandatory reading you, you need to read one of these Uh, and I would steer you toward uh, the one on the right there, at least as that book is going so far. Educate yourself. So let's think, how do we need to respond? I want to think just two things here, pre-abortion and post-abortion. So pre-abortion, like how do we respond? How do we walk through this situation as people are maybe contemplating abortion? Fact is, we have a tremendous opportunity as the people of God to demonstrate mercy and compassion and sensitivity to people who are going through uh, the difficult decision of what to do with a pregnancy that maybe is is, uh, a surprise to, to the people involved. Here's what Psalm 82 says. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. The weak and the needy who is more weak, who is more needy than children in the womb? Who is more vulnerable than children in the womb? John Frame says this, Arguably, the unborn are the weakest, poorest, most helpless people that there are. They have no political or economic strength, not even voices to plead their own cause. And the most terrible part of this is that these children are under attack from their own mothers. They have, therefore, a unique claim upon the mercy of God's people. We need to be sensitive to the fact that there are there are young women 15, 14 years old, very young women who who are are pregnant and they are in impoverished situations and their father has abandoned them and they are frightened and they're overwhelmed and they're talking to people, they're not part of a church and and people are telling them you can't do it. This is impossible, your life is over, and abortion is your only option. That's what they're being told. And those are all lies, but that's what they're being told. And so we have to be prepared as God's people, and as God gives us this opportunity to come alongside these young women and and care for them and love them and instruct them and step up and do what we can to help. We need to seek to do this. And so I'm so glad that Shannon was talking to us here a moment ago about First Choice. This is a local pregnancy resource center. As Shannon explained, it's right here in our town. And this is what they do. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. We don't have to fix the problem by ourselves or individually or as a local congregation. We can lean heavily on First Choice. And so let's seek them out. Let's support First Choice. Choice You can give to them financially. You can volunteer there, as Shannon said. And hopefully you noted that this is not just uh, a situation where women volunteer. They need men to volunteer. Because when women get pregnant, there's always a father, right? And we often forget the father who is involved. That father needs counsel and encouragement as well. And it's best if men come along, those fathers. Many opportunities to help at first Choice. Um, A a number, a phone number that you could all keep in mind is the the care line at First Choice, 286-6060. Easy to remember. Write that down. Keep it in mind. We should be making this available here at the church so that anybody who comes uh, to our church, particularly a young woman who's pregnant, doesn't know what to do, can call this number and get the help that she needs you can consider fostering. You can consider adoption. I know these are tall orders, big jobs. Not everybody's called to those things. Don't feel guilty if you don't foster or adoption, but it is an option. It is a way for you to contribute. And I would say, just lastly, friends, be be prepared to engage. Get yourself ready so that when the topic comes up, when you're with friends or family or whatever, you're not the one who falls silent because you think to yourself, I don't know what to say. Know what to say. Defend life. So, pre-abortion. <clears throat> but what about post-abortion? Talk to Shannon, by the way, more after service if you want more ideas about what to do. Post-abortion, what, what about... Women who've had abortion. The statistics would tell us that about a quarter of women, about one in four women, have had an abortion at some point in their life. That means in their lifetime. That means it's highly likely that, that there are uh, women in this room who have had abortions. At the very least, that, that, that abortion has affected people in this room um, to some degree. The purpose of this sermon, friends, is not to heap guilt and shame upon you. If you had an abortion, we're not ashamed of you. We're not ashamed of you. We don't consider that, our, that we're any better than you. We want you to be part of our community. But <clears throat> what you need to know, more importantly than anything, is that there is forgiveness for you in the gospel. That Jesus Christ shed his blood on the cross, and there is more than enough grace in the shed blood of Jesus to remove all of your shame and your guilt. Believe upon the name of Jesus. Go to him and tell him your sin, and he will wash away your guilt. This is true whether your abortion happened yesterday or whether it happened 40 years ago. It's still true. Scripture is clear. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That includes abortion. Psalm 103, God does not deal with us according to our sins. I'm just going to put the word abortion in there. God does not deal with us according to the abortion that we had, nor repay us according to our abortion. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love to those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our abortion from us. That's what the gospel promises to you. And this is not just something you need if you happen to have had an abortion. We all need this. That's why we're here today. We're all sinners under the condemnation of God for the various sins that we have committed throughout our lives. We worship this God because he has been good and kind and mercy. He has wiped away all of our sins we share with you this need, but we believe that the gospel is true, and you can believe it too. Believe the gospel. The gospel, in fact, is the exact opposite of abortion, friends, because in an abortion, a mother might say to the child, I'm sacrificing you for me. In the gospel, Jesus says, I sacrifice me for you. So believe the gospel be forgiven, and defend the cause of life. God, thank you for your mercy. Thank you that you are gracious towards sinners. We need your forgiveness, and we also need strength, and we need courage, and we need wisdom to defend the cause of the unborn. Would you please help us as individuals and as a church to do that well? In Jesus' name, amen.